eyes in the skies, the Chinese spy balloon back in the spotlight while flying over sensitive U.S. military bases. A new investigation revealing it used American equipment to help in its intel gathering. Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. China news may seem chaotic. With so much information swirling in the news, we want to offer you a look at the bigger picture to help you make sense of the details. If you haven't already, use the link in the description box and subscribe to our China in Focus newsletter. On top of offering the highlights of what's going on, it also gives the much-needed context behind those stories. And once in a while, you'll also get a peek into some behind-the-scenes content to see what we're up to. Every Friday morning, the latest will land in your inbox. Remember the Chinese spy balloon that flew all over the U.S. early this year? Now the Wall Street Journal is adding a more concerning detail. The balloon used U.S. tech to spy on Americans. That's according to initial findings from an investigation which looked into the debris retrieved five months ago. On top of that, U.S. gear, it also carried Chinese sensors and other equipment to snap photos and video. Beijing has insisted the balloon was a civilian airship for weather monitoring. As for how it got to America, wind accidentally blew it off course. President Biden recently revealed the balloon was equipped with two boxcars full of spy equipment. The new revelation added fresh uncertainty to the already fraught U.S.-China relations, with the spy balloon largely stoking that fire. Here's a refresh on what happened. The balloon was first detected over Alaska at the end of January. Five days later, President Biden ordered the military to shoot it down. After another two days, it was downed off the coast of South Carolina. Along its path, the spy balloon flew over Montana. The state is home to the Malmstrom Air Force Base, a facility housing U.S. intercontinental ballistic missile silos. U.S. officials said the craft didn't appear to send details on its eight-day trip back to China. NTD reached out to the White House for confirmation but did not get a response before airtime. Just how many Chinese law enforcement outposts are hiding on U.S. soil? Following the closure of the so-called Chinese Service Center in New York, Missouri is investigating a possible Chinese Communist Party outpost in its state. Following a new revelation that the alleged Chinese Service Center is one of seven such outposts identified in the U.S. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has more. Congresswoman Ann Wagner notified Missouri's Attorney General about the Chinese Service Center last week. She tweeted out at the time, the Chinese Communist Party has been trying to expand its influence globally and we must put a stop to any efforts to gain a foothold in America. Wagner is the U.S. representative for Missouri's 2nd Congressional District. Chinese state media reported there are at least seven of the so-called overseas service centers operating in the U.S. They are in St. Louis, Missouri, St. Paul, Minnesota, Omaha, Nebraska, Charlotte, North Carolina, Houston, Texas, Salt Lake City, Utah, and San Francisco, California. The centers are run by a Chinese regime intelligence service called the United Front Work Department. Missouri AG Andrew Bailey replied to Wagner on Wednesday and vowed to immediately investigate the matter. Bailey called the possibility of a CCP outpost in the state deeply concerning and acknowledged the threat posed by the CCP is very real. The centers work with China's Ministry of Public Security. The DOJ has asserted the ministry conducts covert intelligence operations in the U.S. That includes illegal transnational repression schemes. Other GOP lawmakers also expressed concerns about the CCP service centers last week. 
Senators John Cornyn, Pete Ricketts and Deb Fisher say they are communicating with the FBI about the centers. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Besides secret outposts, China owns nearly twice as many acres of U.S. land as makes up New York City. And some of them are located near American military bases. So what are lawmakers doing about the security concern? The Department of Justice took action on Thursday, but not in the direction one might expect. It ruled a new law signed by Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is unconstitutional. The law signed by DeSantis would restrict some Chinese citizens from owning property in Florida. DeSantis says the goal is to protect his state from one of the biggest security threats to the U.S. The Justice Department filed a statement of interest in federal court in Tallahassee, arguing that the law violates the Fair Housing Act. The filing also alleges the law runs counter to the Equal Protection Clause in the 14th Amendment. DeSantis is running for the Republican nomination for president. He says he's standing up to China and that President Biden is too weak on foreign policy. The law is scheduled to take effect July 1st. U.S. voters beware. Election Watch is filing a complaint with the Federal Election Commission, taking aim at a nonprofit fundraising platform, Act Blue, over its alleged Chinese ties. Let's take a look. Election Watch found many Act Blue donations have gone through the names and home addresses of elderly Americans, apparently without their knowledge. Here's what independent journalist James O'Keefe had to say. Now included in that lawsuit will be evidence that over 60% of the money involved in this is apparently coming from China. ActBlue is feeding a lot of money to other PACs like Emily's List, Color of Change, PAC, just to name a few. Much of this information through Election Watch came from internet tracing, internet traffic patterns looking at where the transactions are coming from and where they're going to. O'Keefe says the lawsuit also brings up receipts of large money transfers through banks and debit card processors. Okay. Election Watch plans to file a lawsuit after waiting the required 120-day period. A new development in the Hunter Biden controversy, and this time it involves Beijing. A whistleblower has brought to light a series of WhatsApp messages showing Hunter demanded $10 million from a Chinese energy firm for a joint venture, believed to be Sinohawk LLC. He promised services from the Bidens in return. The company has known links to the Chinese Communist Party. It's owned half and half by a Chinese company and an American one, run by Hunter Biden and his partners. The exchange happened in early August 2017 between Hunter and Gongwen Kevin Dong, an executive for one of China's top energy firms, CEFC China Energy. According to a Senate report, CEFC wired $5 million to Hudson West 3, a company Hunter built with CEFC's founder just days after the exchange. Over in the Indo-Pacific, the U.S. sent its largest congressional delegation to Taiwan yet this week, with lawmakers landing on Tuesday. Mike Rogers, chairman of the House Armed Services Committee, led the group of nine. They met with Taiwanese leaders to discuss regional security. Our shared commitment to the rule of law, democracy, and a free and open Indo-Pacific has only deepened that friendship. Our support for Taiwan is bipartisan and unwavering. U.S. lawmakers told Taipei that they intend to help protect Taiwan's security through military trade. 
The National Defense Authorization Act continues to include policies and initiatives to assist Taiwan in bolstering its self-defense capabilities and deepened Taiwan-U.S. security cooperation. Beijing calls U.S. attempts to arm Taiwan a powder keg and condemns interactions between Washington and the island. Ahead of the delegation's trip, Mike McCall announced that a Tiger team will aid foreign military arms sales. That's to better support friendly relations, including with Taiwan. Worth noting, Tiger stands for Technical, Industrial and Governmental Engagement for Readiness. Can communism coexist with capitalism or democracy? Blinken touched on the topic Thursday, with discussions swirling around the prospects of decoupling and de-risking from China. Now a new key word may be up for debate, coexist. Here's Blinken's comment. Because the bottom line is this, uh, China's not going away, we're not going away. So in the first instance, we have to find a way to coexist and coexist peacefully. Communications, a word that the top diplomat has stressed. When it comes to China, Blinken can't get away from being asked about the U.S. attitude toward Taiwan, especially when it comes to the island's sovereignty issue. We are there for Taiwan. Uh, under the Taiwan Relations Act, we've had a long-standing policy of making sure that uh, we could uh, do what's necessary to help Taiwan defend itself. That policy and the, um, the sort of rheostat on it also uh, depends a lot on what, what Beijing is doing or not doing. Taiwan's security is critical to the world economy. Besides its dominance in the semiconductor industry, the Taiwan Strait sits on a choke point of world commercial traffic. Blinken said he tried to deliver these messages to China indirectly. While the world watches China ramp up provocation, frequently sending military forces to threaten Taiwan. The final goal, according to Beijing, is to take control of the island. And then finally, there are areas where, if it's in our mutual interest, uh, we should find ways to, uh, to cooperate. Beijing has long played the role of Washington's biggest competitor, as well as its biggest trade partner. But concerns about whether Washington is showing its weakness are getting raised. An expert shared his opinion on the U.S. goal of seeking stabilization. So that, say, is one of the ironies. So they may get some concessions uh, if they scream loud enough as the Americans are embarrassed and you know, seem uh, willing to do almost anything uh, to... They say stabilize the relationship, but the U.S. government seems to think that only the Americans can stabilize the relationship. Chinese behavior will continue as it always has. Secretary Blinken expanded on the administration's current foreign policy during a council interview in New York City, saying the post-Cold War era is over. Revolution of Our Times, an award-winning documentary about Hong Kong's pro-democracy movement two years ago. Now its acclaimed director, Kiwi Chow, says investors are scared to back any more of his projects. Hong Kong introduced a law banning films that threaten national security the same year Chow's movie came out, following Beijing's 2020 security law. What pressures do Hong Kong filmmakers face because of it? We hear from director Kiwi Chow for more. Um, you could say that actors at Hong Kong's film companies are filled with fear, which overshadows everything. In my case, this fear is particularly pronounced, but they may not experience it to the same extent with other directors. You could argue it's an individual situation, but it could also be seen as a broader experience of immense political pressure and intense self-censorship. Chow scrambled to complete his new film, Say I Do To Me, after investors pulled 80% of its funding and the main actor withdrew. Although the film, a love story about a young woman on a journey of self-discovery, 
is far from political. Chow said investors told him they could not take the risk as they still had business with China. He also said the actors were pressured by their management not to work with him. In the end, about 40 to 50 supporters injected fresh funding so the film could be completed. Many investors withdrew their support because of sensitivities surrounding my documentary, Revolution of Our Times. There's also many others who witnessed investors for Say I Do to Me pulling out, which made them unite to gather funding for my film. Despite the disappointing box office performance, I can't help but feel a sense of unease about those investors. Since the censorship law was introduced in October 2021, a Reuters tally shows at least 21 movies and short films have had scenes cut or their release blocked by Hong Kong's Office for Film, Newspaper and Article Association. In an email statement, the office said it had processed about 5,000 applications for film classification since January 2021, denying approval for public exhibition to six of them. It declined to comment on individual films. Meanwhile, Culture Secretary Kevin Yun has previously warned that government funding would not be allocated to film projects that might infringe upon the national security law. Coming up, the notorious Chinese spy balloon reportedly used American tech to spy on Americans during its jaunt in February. U.S. officials described the aircraft, with its mix of American-made gear and Chinese sensors, as an inventive attempt by Beijing for espionage. How big of an impact are those findings to U.S.-China relations? And was Beijing caught straight up lying about its so-called civilian use of the balloon? We sat down with former Assistant Secretary of State and retired Brigadier General David Stilwell for details. His take in just a minute, here on China in Focus. Welcome back to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. For eight days, the Chinese spy balloon took in data as it flew over Alaska, Canada, and a swath of U.S. states. A new report now saying it had American-made equipment loaded inside. Will this new finding send another shockwave through U.S.-China relations? And what should Washington do to avoid shooting itself in the foot? We hear from David Stilwell, former Assistant Secretary of State and retired Brigadier General, for more. General Stilwell, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Always good to be here. So there's this new report out that the Chinese spy balloon that traversed the U.S. was actually using American gear to spy on Americans. How do you see this impacting U.S.-China relations? Well, the, the best part of the story, I mean, as sad as it is, is it will help Americans understand the real intent of the CCP. The myth that the balloon was a weather balloon gone off course uh, denies the fact that we know it was full of surveillance gear and that it was maneuverable because it happened to fly over American missile fields, American strategic bases. It was very much uh, controllable. So now that we know what was in it and the fact that it was American stuff, I hope we'll use this um, to get American companies to think twice about exporting sensitive or any technology to the PRC for two reasons. One, it's going to hurt their economic bottom line because they'll steal the intellectual property on that and then public, you know, produce it themselves. Uh, but two, they're going to be complicit when we show that a you know American company had their gear on this balloon. Uh, they, they can do things uh, to keep it out of the Chinese hands. So they, CEOs can make conscious decisions not to make these, uh, these trades. 
Now, it seems this was commercially available gear that China was using, and U.S. officials are describing this combination of American gear and Chinese sensors as, quote, an inventive attempt by Beijing for spying. What do you make of that part? Well, to say that they have no control is disingenuous because the Commerce Department uh, Treasury put out entity lists, and we identified DJI and a bunch of these other companies uh, that we prevent, we do not allow American companies to export to or to sell to. Uh, now, we could wait until Commerce and Treasury and the rest uh, identify even more companies, which is happening all the time, by the way. But the PRC can then subvert that by going through third parties or companies eager to make a buck will go, oh, we didn't know. What are the penalties for violating the, the entity list? I don't know. Uh, that's worth asking, the, the again, the folks from Commerce and Treasury. But it does seem like the awareness of the downside of doing business with the PRC, especially on the high tech side, uh, is beginning to show itself. We are seeing that in terms of semiconductors, especially with the profit lines being there. But it seems another way China is able to get U.S. technology is through something called the U.S.-China Science and Technology Agreement that was started in 1979. It's actually up for renewal this year, and 10 congressmen are coming out against it, saying the U.S. should not renew it. That's over concerns that American tech could be used against Americans. What do you make of all of this? But it is reasonable to want to maintain that uh, if you're sitting in a C-suite, if you're a CEO somewhere, because there's in what would what should be a mutually beneficial trade, uh, that that law makes sense, that agreement makes sense. But I think we're to the point now where we realize the PRC has gone 100% adversarial on us, and that anything we share with them could eventually be used against us, as we just saw with the balloon. So I think the Congress is on the right track. You know, you've got the China Committee and a bunch of other things, which are now providing valid information uh, where we will um, do the right thing. And yes, we should take that law down until we get um, agreements from the PRC to use these things in the manner that intended and, and not in nefarious ways. And how likely are we to see that? Because it seems looking at historical examples, the Chinese regime says one thing and then does the opposite. Well, again, luckily on this one, the PRC doesn't have a say. Um, now what's going to happen, and again, we're seeing more and more talks on this, is they're going to threaten to retaliate. And then you'll get pressure from people in government uh, to take you know, to take a step back, go, is this, is this an overreaction? Do we want to think through this? And the answer is, yes, we're done. We should definitely do this. Um, but you're, you know, the great thing about our system is there are many voices, and we should heed them all. And then that allows us to take balanced action instead of overreacting. But at this point, to, to terminate that agreement would not be an overreaction. It's, it's more than time. And to your point, these lawmakers are saying in this letter that the U.S. must stop fueling its own destruction this way. It sounds like these concerns are legit. So what needs to be done then? I can't remember if it was Lenin or Khrushchev or who in the Soviet Union said, you know, the Americans will sell us the rope that we will hang them with. Well, we're selling the PRC a lot of rope. Uh, and so, well, the first thing that has to happen is we have to take a open, honest assessment of this. And that starts with the intel community. Um, there are 17 parts of the intel community. One of those belongs to the Treasury. The Treasury should take a very hard look at this and ask, is the cost of doing business with the PRC in this regard worth uh, is the benefit worth the cost that, that is happening? I, I, again, I'm a defense guy. I'm a national security guy. It all looks very clear on my side. But 
you're going to affect the bottom line of some American companies. You may end up uh, affecting jobs for American workers. So the Treasury and others have to take both a foreign policy approach, national security approach, but they also have to take a domestic prosperity and economic security approach. So I don't envy them on this. General Stilwell, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Tiffany. See you. That's all for today's China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. If you have any feedback on the show or have something you'd like to see us cover, send us an email at chinainfocus at ntd.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for watching. See you tomorrow.